Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out for a chance to win the French Open title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV, live in HD. Don't miss a moment with daily live coverage and match replays on demand, beginning Monday, May 20th. Be there for all the unforgettable moments. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus. This episode of Stock Club is brought to you by Hyundai. Restart your journey towards a greener world with Hyundai's next generation of zero emission cars. Find out more about their range of electric vehicles and the savings they can bring to your company and employees at Hyundai.ie. Hi there and welcome to the Stock Club podcast. I'm James and with me here today is my Wall Street's co-founder and chief investor Emmett Savage, along with a very special guest. A lot of you will probably already know Morgan Housel from his writings at the Wall Street Journal, The Motley Fool and The Collaborative Fund. He's also just published his latest book, The Psychology of Money, which is an absolutely fantastic read. In this special episode, Morgan dials in to tell us a little bit more about his book, as well as giving us his perspective on both the US market and the world at large, including the psychology behind the 2008 financial crisis and what we can learn from it as investors, the long-term impacts he expects to see from the coronavirus on the world, how much weight we should be putting on the upcoming US presidential election as investors, and why we should all try to save like a pessimist and invest like an optimist. This was an incredibly insightful episode to record, so I really hope you guys get a lot out of listening to it too. Enjoy. So Morgan, welcome to the Stock Club podcast. So just for any listeners that might not know who you are, Morgan is a partner at the Collaborative Fund, an early stage venture capital firm. Prior to joining the Collaborative Fund, Morgan was also a columnist for The Motley Fool and The Wall Street Journal. He's a prolific and well-respected writer, winning a host of awards for his writing, including the Best in Business Award from the Society of American Business Editors and Writers twice, and the New York Times Sydney Award. He's also recently published his latest book, The Psychology of Money, which we're going to talk about later in the show. Morgan, did I miss anything out there? No, that was great. Thank you for having me today. So uh, we're huge fans of you here at My Wall Street, and we've got lots of questions to, to ask you. Um, Emma, do you want to kick off with a few questions for Morgan? I will. Morgan, great to see you and great to connect. How are you keeping? We're good. We're good. It's, uh, you know, it's an interesting time for the entire world, but trying to keep a good perspective on 2020. So things are, things are, as, good at, things are as good as, as they could be, I would say, in 2020. But that's not saying right. much relative to a normal year. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we've been big fans of your writing for years here at My Wall Street. Even though you're majored in, in economics, it appears as though history, psychology or creative writing would have been equally strong callings for you, Morgan. Can you tell us a little bit about the path that led you to the career you're in today? Yeah, no, that's, that's an interesting way to frame it because I don't regret majoring in economics. I felt like it was a good it was a good part of my education. But you kind of hinted at something that was that's been important for me, which is Look, I started writing full-time about the economy in 2007, 2008, which was right when the global economy was falling apart with the financial crisis. So a lot of my early years as a writer were devoted to trying to answer the question, what happened in 2008? What happened? Why did people make the decisions that they did? What were their incentives? What were they thinking? Have we learned our lesson? Those are the questions that I tried to answer. And it, it dawned on me, not, not right away, there was no aha moment, but over time, I kind of realized that the answers to those questions, to the extent that they exist, did, were, could not be found in any economics textbook. You could not explain why people did what they did through the lens of any economic theory. Because the economic theories assume that we are rational, that we are coherent, that we have good information, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but you could find subtle clues 
that explained the financial crisis in a psychology textbook and a sociology textbook and a political science textbook and history textbooks. That's where you could find examples that tried that, that could clarify and give you some insight into why we behaved the way that we did, which for me just kind of opened up this door that finance and investing is, is you know, that if, if we're talking about investing, investing is not the study of finance. Investing is a study of how people make decisions with money, how people behave with money. And that is a much broader field than tends to go into the, the narrow field of economics or of finance. So I think if you view investing as how do people think about greed? How do people think about fear and scarcity and opportunity, long-term thinking? What are their incentives? What are their motivations? That's a much broader topic that we tend to think about investing through. And it's been fun for me over the last decade or go to cast a really wide net and to try to think about investing and learn about investing through the lens of all these other fields, like psychology, as the name of the book implies, and even things like military history and politics. All of those fields have a window into how people make decisions. And if you can figure out how and why people make decisions, I think that is the best that you can do towards becoming a better investor. So that was kind of my journey over the years, was just slowly realizing that investing was more than finance and trying to broaden my horizons of my learning uh, and, and, and researching other fields to try to gain insights into how we think about money and risk and opportunity. Mm, very interesting because like we are on a journey of learning about ourselves and my Wall Street, learning about great investments, but most of all, learning about the psychology of those decisions. And here at my Wall Street, we try to pick individual stocks that we think will have the best chance of beating the returns of the market over the long term. Now, you started your career doing the same thing, but now I believe your personal strategy appears to have shifted towards low-cost index funds. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, why so? Why are you going almost in the opposite, well, not almost, fully in the opposite direction to the direction that I personally am heading? Yes, it's a great question because I think the answer is not what people would assume. And my first, uh, my first disclosure is that what works for me might not work for, for other people. And I, I, I'm not just saying that to make the lawyers happy. I really mean that we all have different goals, different uh, personalities, different quirks that we all need to manage for. So just because this works for me, I'm not saying other people should do it as well. That's my disclosure. But here's, here's what's important for me. The metric that I want to maximize for over the course of my investing life is how long can I stay invested for? That's the sole thing that I want to maximize for. Because if I can remain invested for 40 years or 50 years, if I can actually do that, and actually remain invested for that long, I'm going to achieve every financial goal that I can, that I have, and then some. Uh, and, and compounding works the best when you can actually do that. Like if I can actually remain invested for 50 years, the results are going to be extraordinary. They won't just be okay. They'll be extraordinary if I can do that. So for me, then the question becomes what strategy gives me the highest odds of endurance, the highest odds of actually being able to stick with something for a very long period of time. And to me, the answer to that question is the absolute simplest investing strategy possible. The fewer knobs I have to fiddle with, the fewer levers I have to pull, the fewer options I'm going to have to make a mistake that is going to deter me, pull me away from being able to stay invested for 40 or 50 years. So here's the really important nuance to this. Do I think there are stock pickers who can beat the market? Yes. Do I think there are money managers who can outperform over time? Yes, I do. This is not, this, should, this doesn't have to be black and white of you can do it or you can't. I think they can, but maybe I'm playing a slightly different game in terms of I just want to maximize for time horizon and endurance and nothing else. So I know that there are strategies that I could employ, other investors who I could follow, in which I would earn higher returns this year 
over the next five years, maybe over the next 10 years. I know that's the case. And I'm okay foregoing that because I think that for myself, utilizing those strategies would increase the odds that I would eventually have be pulled away from that strategy in a way that would impact my endurance. Charlie Munger has this great quote where he says, the first rule of compounding is to never interrupt it unnecessarily. I just don't want to be interrupted. That's really what I'm trying to maximize for. The other thing about passive versus active, let's say, is we all know the, the statistics, at least in the United States, it varies worldwide. But in the United States, 90% of active managers will underperform their benchmark. We know that, that statistic. It is typically used as an indictment on the active management. 90% can't do it. So there's proof that it doesn't work. I, I don't think that's the case. I think that's how it should be. It, it should be the case that beating the market is difficult over time and that not everyone who tries will be able to do it. That should be the case. I use the analogy of like professional sports. Like what percentage of college basketball players make the NBA? I, I actually don't know what it is, but maybe it's like 1%, something like that. No one would look at that statistic and say, college basketball is a scam because 99% of players don't make the pros. No one would say that. People just say making the pros is hard. It, sh it should be something that only a few people are able to do over time. So yeah. that's, that's another nuance that I, that I put into it. Uh, but I, I have so much respect for a lot of active managers who are out picking good companies, analyzing good companies, analyzing industries with the intent to outperform, and they will be successful at it. But my personality, my quirks lead me towards focusing on just a different variable. Mm. That's fascinating. You know, when I look at the world today, uh, there's a kind of an, a movement uh, towards ESG investing at the moment, which might lean into something that you're doing with the Collaborative Fund. Do you think it's anything more than a box to check off for companies right now? Um, do you think that ESG is something that we all need to concern ourselves with because it's the right thing to do or because it offers the greatest opportunity for returns or a blend of both? And what do you see as the next steps for ESG as a kind of theme? Yeah, I think there's there's two sides to this. One is that you will see some statistics put forth by consultants and whatnot that ESG investing is now has $15 trillion. Maybe it's $30 trillion. You see these ridiculously large numbers. And to me, whenever I see that, I say, well, if that's true, if there, if there actually is $15 trillion in ESG, then ESG doesn't mean anything. It's just, it's just you can take any asset you want and slap an ESG sticker on it and use it as marketing yeah. <laughs> and to give your clients. That's what it means to me, uh, if it's actually that big. So whenever I like, usually see those statistics in like a pro ESG commercial, $15 trillion, I'm like, oh, that's actually a really bad news if that's the case. So there is a lot of marketing in ESG, of course, because there's investor demand for it. So if yeah. you are a mutual fund company, an ETF company, you know you can take your normal strategy, slap ESG on it and raise twice as much money, double your fee, whatever it is. That, that element absolutely exists. I do though think that if you were to call, uh, let's just call it legitimate ESG, and we can define that in various ways, but I think there is a lot of validity to the idea that because there's so much access to information in the world today, consumers know how the, the companies that they are doing business with, they know how they operate. They know how they treat their employees. They know where they source their products. They know how they treat their shareholders. There's so much, like the, the, there's, it's hard to hide behind bad business models anymore. People know what's going on behind the scenes to a much greater extent than they have in any point in the past. And because of that, consumers are much more likely to only want to do business with companies whose values align with their own. 
and companies that use their ability to do good, I think as an economic competitive advantage. It's where it's not a sacrificial to their product. It's not, you know, if, if, if you buy one pair of shoes, we'll donate another pair of shoes to, uh, to kids in Africa. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but that's kind of like a sacrificial add-on to the, like all you're doing in that situation is, is hurting your margins. Uh, so it's yeah. noble in the sense that you're trying to do good, but it's just sacrificial. Whereas if you are a company whose ability to do good is actually an economic competitive advantage for you, you are probably going to attract the most loyal customers the most, the best and most loyal employees in a way that's going to be, again, an economic competitive advantage, not just a moral advantage, but an economic one. So th- that does exist. And I think that will be a key driver of returns in almost every asset class over the coming decades. But you also have to pair that with the obvious flagrant marketing that is taking place in the, in, in the ESG space uh, yeah. all over the place. Yeah. Morgan, uh, in your work with the Collaborative Fund, you've been involved with a lot of very notable companies like Beyond Meat and Kickstarter. Where where do you see ESG going next? What do you think is, is the future of ESG? I think it's, I think there's a couple of ways to, th- like, when ESG really started coming out, you know, it's, it's the, the, in various versions, it's been out for forever, for a long time, but it really started getting popular maybe 10 or 15 years ago, 20 years ago. And most of the early iterations of it were, let's call it a negative screen. You take the S&P 500 or various index and you would say, we're going to take out the oil companies and the gun companies and the casinos. It was a negative screen. And you know, that had some, had some worth to it. If you are someone who said like, look, I don't want to own Philip Morris. I don't want to own the gun companies. Then great. Like that, that was a step in the right direction for you. And I think that is traditionally how ESG investing has worked, a negative screen. I think you're going to see a lot more positive screens going forward, where rather yeah. than starting with the index and stripping yeah. out the bad ones, you're going to say, Early. well, who are the good ones? Don't just strip yeah. out the bad ones. And this gets back to the point I made about uh, using your ability to do good as an advantage. That's very different from just saying, I don't want to own the oil companies. That's a completely mm. different universe. So I think going forward, that's that's the difference that we're going to see. Uh, hopefully, if you have an ESG fund, it's going to be companies whose components you look at and you're really proud of. And you're like, that. that is a good company that's doing well for everyone. It's doing well for mm. uh, customers, employees, shareholders. Everyone is all in on that. And here's one example yeah. of like the, the negative screen. Uh, Vanguard has an ESG index. And if you look at the components of it, it might, it, it, you might shake your head. There's, it's like Coca-Cola, Wells Fargo, Citigroup, Herbalife, <laughs> like companies that look, maybe they have some positive components to it, but I myself would look at that and be like, you, you can make the argument that Coca-Cola has done a lot of social harm through yeah. selling sugar drink. That's that, that might be a more controversial topic, but you know, I, I think going forward, you're going to see less of that and you're going yeah. to see more of just purely good companies. And the, the other thing that that brings up that's important in the space is that everyone's definition of good is different. Yeah. It's very hard Absolutely. to quantify yeah. ESG. So mm-hmm. back to the Coca-Cola example, I'm making this up, but maybe they got included in the index because they have a, a gender diverse board of directors. I'm making all this up. Like maybe that's not the case, but you could, you know, there's it, as long as it's subjective, your definition of good is subjective, then the, then there's going to be a lot of wiggle room for what, what people can do and add in there. It's very different than if you're running a small cap value fund and you say, we're yeah. only going to own companies of less than a billion dollars in market cap that trade for less than 15 times earnings. You can quantify all of that. ESG is a totally different beast. Though. Let me change direction a little bit, Morgan. Over the years, you've repeatedly mentioned that World War II was one of the most impactful events in American history, which of course it was, most especially in terms of how we arrived at where we're at today. So we're still in the midst of it. And here comes elephant in the room number one. How do you think 
that the economic and social upheaval of the coronavirus pandemic will compare to that from World War II? It's a really interesting point. And I think the, the, the first point to make here is that if 2020 has not humbled you in your ability to figure out what's going to happen next in the economy, nothing will. <laughs> yeah. So my, my honest answer to that question is, well, who knows? I have no yeah. idea. That's yeah. the honest answer. But but let me give you the, the second tier of honesty. If, if, if I were to try to make a, make a pitch about where I think this would go. Uh, the biggest story in the economy right now. Well, let's say this, let's back up. The biggest economic story of the last 30 or 40 years is the rise in wealth inequality. Now that can be a very, uh, uh, that can be a topic that is politically sensitive. People have very different views on whether it's good or not, what we should do about it. I actually don't care in this context, whether you think it's good or bad or what you think we should do about it. All I care is that it has happened, that there has been a big explosion of wealth inequality that affects how people think about the economy, that some people think about the economy in very different ways because they've had such dramatically different experiences in the global economy over the last 30 years. And what COVID-19 has done is it took the rise in wealth inequality that's taken place since the early 1980s, and it just exploded it. And it, it just widened it to, to a degree that we have not seen uh, since. So, so wealth inequality was growing by a lot over the last 30 years, and it just got so much bigger this year. So you can very cleanly segment the economy into two, two areas, people who can work from home and people who can't, businesses that can stay open and businesses that can't. Like it's so black and white, clear as day to where it's not an exaggeration at all to say, you know, maybe 30% of the economy, 40% of the economy is doing better than ever right now. All time highs, record sales, record stock prices, and 40, 50%, something like that is an economy that is literally worse than the Great Depression, worse than the Great Depression. And I, I don't think we've ever had a gap like that exists before. It's just this enormous gap. And I think uh, that's going to have a lot of a lot of ramifications. Whenever you have, you know, you segment society into a sense that one side just cannot comprehend the life of the other side. Mm. That's not that's not a, that's not a good thing. That's not mm. a good whether it's talking about politics or economic policy. If if, if people are living in two separate worlds, that that can lead to some dangerous things. And frankly, uh, you know, I I read a little bit about this in the books. So I go into greater detail, but I'll try to keep it short here. I think that lack of understanding about how the other side is living on both sides. This is not a one-sided thing. Uh, Has at least played some role into the rise of Donald Trump and Brexit and a lot of these other things that kind of all reflect this idea of people saying, this isn't working for me. Let let me off the train. Like this, this is not working. We need to do something Mm -hmm. else. So I I think if there is one uh, long-term worry that I have about what COVID-19 is doing to the economy, it's just that complete segmentation uh, mm. that, that, that bifurcation into those yeah. who are doing better than ever and those who are just living in a state of utter despair economically right now. Yeah, and actually it's a perfect segue into something you mentioned to me. You explained to me about two years ago that all economic growth is a function of population growth or productivity growth. Correct me if I'm wrong here. And I think you went down to say that there's no example of an economy growing with a shrinking population. How is the US faring on that front, not necessarily with respect to its, um, you know, population growth, but with respect to this bifurcation that you've described, is the U.S. economy still on the right track for growth? From what you can observe, I think if you look at the entire U.S. economy in aggregate, yes, it's still on track. Mainly because of we had some huge stimulus packages this year and Federal Reserve policy that is pushing it in aggregate. But uh, 
and there's never been a time in history when the aggregate is as more misleading as it is right now, uh, just because of the the segmentation between how different different groups are doing. Uh, I, I do think the, the the point that you brought up about demographics is really is really important if you're to look at the next thirty or forty years in the global economy, because yes, all economic growth is population growth and productivity. And if you just focus on the the population growth side of that equation, over the next 30 years, uh, China, Japan, South Korea, Russia, most of Europe have not just poor, but terrible demographics to where their working age populations are not just going to decline, but decline by, in some cases, 20, 30% declines. Sort of similar to what Japan has dealt with over the last 30 years, where their economy more or less stagnated in real terms, by and large, because their population was just not their population growth was not sufficient to push aggregate economic growth ahead. So a lot of the world, a lot of even the developed world, particularly China, is probably the biggest standout example, is going to be in a similar situation over the next twenty or thirty years. And something like demographics uh, is is a, is a field in economics where we can actually make a long term projection with some degree of of certainty and confidence. Uh, because even if you were to have a new baby boom that started tomorrow, uh, those babies are not going to be joining the workforce force for another 20 or 25 years. So it takes time. Like there's always like, we know with a high degree of certainty, what the populations will look like over the next 10 or 20 years. And it's not that great among a lot of the world. The United States is in a better relative position than almost any industrialized economy in terms of population growth. Our working age population will increase over the next 20 or 30 years, even if you make a very conservative estimate of what immigration will be. But at the same time, it is still much lower than it was over the last 50 or 100 years. So I think a lot of the growth that we had in the 20th century, if you're talking you know, 3 4% real growth that we had, it's very difficult to see how that would occur over the next 50 or so years, unless we have some incredible increase in productivity growth. Um, so I, I, I think that's, that's just a matter of adjusting your expectations that, you know, in, in the 20th century four the 4% economic growth is probably the equivalent of like 2% economic growth in the 21st century. You just have to adjust your expectations a little yeah. bit for what, what we can achieve. So is the U.S. in pole position or what regions in the world do you think are best positioned to grow in the generation ahead? Like, is it number one U.S.? You know, are there some, is there somewhere else we need to keep our eye well, look, I'm biased in that. Obviously, yeah. I'm. Uh, you know, I, I, I love my. I, I want to believe in my home country, of course. So I'm going to be. I'm probably not the most objective person to ask, but I, I, I am optimistic about the United States economy over the long run. If I'm looking at the next 20 or 30, 40 years, I would still be optimistic. If you look globally, and if we're, again we're just going to focus on something that we can predict with confidence, like population growth, then you would yeah. look at India, Indonesia, and Sub-Saharan Africa yeah. as probably the driver of population growth and therefore a lot of aggregate world growth going forward. And you would probably look at China as the most likely economic anchor mm-hmm. worldwide yeah. to, to wow. global GDP growth over the next 30 years. The one child policy, which is now relaxed, if not, if not gone, is going to have echoes for a long time, just because again, it takes 20 years from the birth of a baby to you have a worker. So it takes yeah. a long time for these things to play out um, in, in a way that's going to be really difficult. The Chinese working age population, which is age 16 to 64, it was on track to decline by 200 million people from 2012 to 2050, 200 million people, wow. even as a share of their working age population, a percentage, it's enormous. Mm. And there's just not a lot of actually precedent for that in modern history for what happens to a large industrial economy when you lose 20% of your workforce. And maybe there's going to be things that come out of that, that 
I'm overlooking and I can't foresee that will be positive. Maybe we'll figure it out in new ways. We'll come up with new kinds of AI technology that creates a lot of efficiencies and productivity. Like who knows what's going to happen. But if you were to focus on variables that we have confidence in, it's something like that. Great. So uh, as you point out in your book, Morgan, we haven't seen a bout of inflation in the U.S., in about 40 years, if I'm correct. The government has been ha- uh, handing out a lot of money, pretty much everywhere, through stimulus checks and the likes. Do you think that we, and I say when I say we, I mean the US, is at risk of some kind of secular inflation soon as a result of all these stimulus packages that have been handed out? So here's kind of the, the, the nuance of this all. If you look historically at bouts of high inflation, you want to talk about hyperinflation, something like you see also in Germany in the 1920s or Zimbabwe, uh, all of that happens almost without exception when the economy is broken. It's not necessarily that the central banks are printing a lot of money. It's that the economies and the industries are broken. You see it after world wars when the factories are bombed into rubble. You see it in Zimbabwe when the governments confiscate most of the productive assets, Venezuela as well. Um, so the, the, the equation for inflation is too much money chasing too few goods. It's the too few goods side of that equation that makes most of the difference. Because it's when you have too few goods, when your factories have been bombed into rubble and they're not producing anymore, that even if you have a small amount of money in the system, if it's chasing not many assets, you're going to get inflation in that situation. Uh, So by and large, I think this is why we did not have a lot of inflation after the 2008 money printing from the Federal Reserve. It's because the economy was not fundamentally broken. We were still producing as much as we needed, as much as as we had in previous years. Uh, so even though there was a lot of money printing, it was it was only it was chasing the, the roughly same amount of goods, so it didn't make that much of a difference. What's interesting about 2020 though is that for the first time in a long time, we have industries that are fundamentally broken. Mm-hmm. Restaurants that are closing for good. They will never yeah. open back up. Hotels that are open uh, that are closing for good. Airlines that are laying off half their employees and canceling plane orders. Now, what will happen, hypothetically, if we get good vaccine news in the coming uh few few weeks, few months. Let's all cross our fingers. Excuse me. And we have another big stimulus package. And in 2021, we're all vaccinated. There's a big stimulus package. So we can all go outside and we have a lot of money to do it. And what's the first thing we want to do? I want to go out to a restaurant and I want to go on vacation. Well, look, if half the restaurants have closed, if a third of the hotels have closed, if the airlines have laid off half their employees, suddenly you're going to have a lot of money chasing not a lot of goods at the same time. That is where you could get probably the greatest odds of inflation, at least in some sectors that we've seen in 40 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's in, in those certain sectors, I think you, 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 the, the, the odds that we could see a problem in the coming years, I think are, are pretty high, definitely the highest yeah. we've seen in a long time. But I still think the, the predominant force right now among the entire economy, not just sp- specific sectors, is that people just aren't spending a lot of money relative to the amount of goods that we're still producing. Uh, so that's why there's just not a lot of inflation pressures. Um, if you look at something like oil, like we still have the, the capabilities of producing a lot of oil. We're just not driving as much. We're not flying nearly as much as we did. So that's why yeah. it's, even though the Fed is printing trillions of dollars, the price of oil, the price of gasoline has plunged this year. So can I go on to the second elephant in the room? And thanks, Morgan. That was the best explanation I've had on inflation possibly ever. But um, second elephant of two is the upcoming presidential election. So without showing your hand, what are the things you'll be watching out for throughout this process? Uh, well, you know, I, I think it's impossible to not show my hand. And I'm happy to show my hands. Okay. Uh, and, and I think it's best be for not everyone. But, you know, the last four years have been crazy and erratic. And in a way that is... Uh, if you are an investor or a business person has been, or, or just a civilian in the United States, it's been really hard to watch. So uh, 
you know, I like there, there's a saying of, of course, this is true in every in every modern democracy that this is the most important election of our lifetimes. You say that every election, everyone <laughs> yeah. always says that. Yeah. Uh, and at some point, it's just a normal election. But 2020 <laughs> really feels like the biggest freaking election of our lifetimes, of course, because yeah. it's I mean, the, the differences between candidates are so opposed to each other, so different from each other mm-hmm. that it's going to have a very big outcome on where things go. Now, I, I, would, I would give you this answer years ago, and I'll give you this answer today. We tend to overestimate how much influence the president has on the stock market and the economy. It's not that they have no influence. We just overestimate it. And you see this particularly when you see the stock market went up and you say, you know, the stock market went up under X president. It's like they give them all the credit or, you know, this, this president created 10 million jobs. Like you give them so much, you give them a hundred percent credit, which is ridiculous. And the same is true in the other direction. If you have a recession, you say, this is Barack Obama's recession. This is Donald Trump's recession. We just tend to personify what's mm. going on in the economy in a way that I think is really not fair in either direction for either party. So look, I think regardless of who wins, I'm still optimistic on the United States. Yeah. But I think there's a level of just different tone, different policy, obviously, than we've been used to in the United States in a very long time, if ever. Uh, so it's it's gonna make it's gonna make a big difference, uh, you know, what happens in the next in the next couple of weeks. To say yeah. nothing of we don't even know in the United States if we're going to learn who won the election on election day, it might mm-hmm. take weeks or months to figure that out, which yeah. adds a whole nother can of worms for just what happens domestically, what happens in the economy during that interim period where we don't really know who's in charge. Yeah. I think it's the first election in my adult's life that I won't be waiting up all night to watch because there's nothing to watch when you have to count the polls uh, via post. So can I just, you mentioned in your book, Morgan, that every investor has their own experience with the market and the economy based on when and where they were born. What do you think our kids will say about the market when they're 50 years of age? So I'm, I'm 36. If I look at the generation who is a little bit younger than me, five or 10 years younger than me, uh, th- those are, that's kind of the group, th- that group, and also I would say my generation is who I worry about the most. And I'll tell you why. Uh, so I graduated, my, my, my kind of generation, my cohort graduated right into the financial crisis of 2008. That's when we graduated college, uh, which is a very bad time to graduate, very bad time to enter the job market when the economy had 10% unemployment, et cetera. Uh, but during 2008, it was easy for everyone, regardless of generation, to say, this is bad, this is brutal, but this is a one-off, this is a once-in-a-century financial crisis. This isn't going to happen again in your lifetime. We got really unlucky that we, this happened to occur, but, then, but this is a one-off. That, it was easy to make that argument. Now that COVID-19 happened, and we have, in many ways, a worse economic crisis than we did in 2008, then I think the people who have dealt with this twice are starting to say, look, maybe 2008 was not a one-off. Maybe this is just how the world works. Maybe every 10 years, there's a complete economic collapse. And I think that could have a really big impact on people's optimism. Very different, I think, from uh, the baby boomer generation that's had you know, periods, you know, long periods of sustained prosperity. Whereas in the United States, you had 2008 and then a very slow recovery. And then all of a sudden, boom, right back into COVID-19. Yeah. Like, well, that leaves scars on a generation who has experienced nothing but collapse and stagnation, so to speak. Is that going to mm. stick with them in terms of mm. a level of, of pessimism, of not wanting to take a lot of risk? I think there's a legitimate chance of that. 
mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in a way that we might not have seen since kind of the generation that came of age during the Great Depression and then immediately went into World War II. That was another yeah. experience where it's like it's like it's not it's not just the Great Depression. So you had the Great Depression and then you went off to World War. And it's, mm-hmm. that just leaves it with us this idea that the world breaks every 10 years. Every 10 years, everything falls apart. If you really believe that in your soul because you've experienced it, I think that can have an impact mm-hmm. on how you view the world for the rest of your life. No doubt. I mean, as you say, like we hope and have our fingers crossed we'll see a vaccine and effective therapies being announced very shortly. But if not, we are definitely going to see a whole new generation who not only have a, a skewed view of how economics works, but how interpersonal relationships work. The ability to embrace a friend and give them a hug or shake a hand and do things that you, the three of us have taken as a norm for so long. I also, I also think about, too... Uh, if you think about high school and college students where their their contact social life has been completely upended, how many yeah. how many first dates have been lost? How yeah. many you know first crushes, first kisses have been lost? Yeah. All these things that actually have a really big important impact on society to move forward. Relationships. Yeah. How many how yeah. many roommates that would have started a technology startup because they were roommates yeah. and they're talking together late at night? How many of those have been foregone this year? Yeah. It's like it's actually, if you think about it in those terms, it's like, this is a big deal. I'm not sure of the situation in the States, Morgan, but I know over here that, you know, even with the new college year, a lot of colleges and, and courses are being held online now. So a lot of, a lot of, um, late people in their late teens are missing out on the experience of going to college and moving out at home for the first time and things like that. I think it's huge milestones being missed. Yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah, it's, it's huge. And I think something like that, we don't know the impact that that's going to have for another 10 or 20 years. So there's so many echo effects of that, that we don't really know. Like how many technology businesses, how many businesses that would have started in 2020 did not start? Well, we're not going to know yeah. the real economic impact of that for 10 years when those businesses that would have started this year would have been mature companies that were employing thousands of people that just don't exist 10 years from now. It's going to take a long time for that to play out. So, Morgan, what lessons from history are most important to remember as an individual investor? Here's one really optimistic one. If you look at Germany's GDP, I'm going to use World War II again as an example. You mentioned earlier, I bring it up a lot. I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to do it one more time. If you look at Germany's GDP in 1945, at the end of the war, Germany's GDP was had declined by something like 70%. It was, Germany's economy was bombed into rubble by the Allies. The factories, the trains, the depots were all obliterated. There was virtually nothing left of the German economy uh, in 1945. It only took three and a half years for Germany to regain its pre-war GDP. From, from being completely obliterated, it only took three years to completely rebuild the German economy. We, we see similar things in Japan at the end of World War II, uh, in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, in New York City after September 11th. There's actually a really long history of economies taking enormous catastrophic hits and recovering faster than anyone thought possible. It's, like, it's easy to look at an economy that has been destroyed and think this is going to take generations to rebuild. And by and large, it doesn't. Uh, it's just, I mean, it's, there's, there's really actually an optimistic history in that. So look, I think one big takeaway for me in 2020, I have this idea that I think people should save like a pessimist and invest like an optimist. Mm-hmm. What I mean by that is like, you should invest like an optimist and be optimistic about the future, that people are going to figure out problems. We're going to become more productive. That's going to accrue to you as a shareholder. Invest like an optimist, but you need to save like a pessimist and realize that if you look at the course of history, it is a constant, never-ending chain of disappointment and disaster and recession and bear market and pandemic and things going wrong and huge terrorist attacks, assassinations. 
like all of history is a never ending chain of bad news, even if it takes place amid a backdrop of a lot of progress and growth. So that's important to realize in 2020 as well, is that you can acknowledge how bad it is right now and how devastating it is right now and still be an optimist. That is not a conflicting idea um, to, to hold those two things at the same time. It, it, it can feel like it's contradictory. Like, how can I remain an optimist if I'm telling you that we're in a recession worse than the Great Depression? Those two things can actually coexist if you just think about it in differences in time frame. Like, everything's going to be terrible for a long time, but I think we're still going to do great over the long run. I think keeping that mindset, it's a simple mindset, mm-hmm. and it's easy to overlook when if, when the world feels like it's falling apart. Morgan, does that mindset then kind of lead in, you talk a lot in your in the book about a margin of error and having that kind of room and flexibility in your in your financial plans. Do you think that leads into that? Yeah, that's I mean, that's the whole key to it. There's a great quote from Benjamin Graham, the great investor, where he says, the purpose of the margin of safety is to render the forecast unnecessary. I love yeah. there's so much like power and wisdom in that quote. I love it. If you just accept how hard it is for us to forecast what's going to happen next, what's going to be the next problem, what's going to be the next recession, when's it going to come? We don't know. There's no ability to know it. Then you need to have a margin of safety so that you can render the forecast unnecessary. And just giving yourself endurance to put up with whatever happens. Uh, I think over the course of every single person's life, you're going to deal with at least at least one catastrophe, major job loss, medical emergency, divorce, like whatever it is, everyone's going to deal with something. And a lot of your lifetime returns financially are going to depend on how you behaved and how how much how, how much durability you had financially during that moment or during those yeah. several moments when everything fell apart in your life. Uh, you know, you, the majority of your lifetime financial success will be determined by how you did during those you know, two or three moments during your life. And that's why just having a margin of, a, of error is so important because if during those moments you find yourself as fragile and you need to sell all your stocks to pay your bills or you get kicked out of your house, whatever, you, know, you find yourself in a fragile situation, that can be something that you will never recover from financially. And having enough room for error to endure a lot of unknowns and a lot of problems is probably the single most important aspect of doing well financially over time. Morgan, we're going to move into a quick fire round, five questions requiring a short answer. So first up, and I think you might have answered this one, but I've written it down here in my book, so I'm going to ask it anyway. If you could teach your kids just one financial lesson, what would it be? Uh, I I would teach them that they are uh, white Americans born to college-educated parents, and 99% of the world is not that. I think it's really important to realize the position that you're at in life and realize that uh, there are the, the majority of the world looks at the world in different ways than you do. I think that's really important to recognize in everyone's life if, 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 you, if you are in that situation. Great answer and a great lesson. Two, apart from the psychology of money, what book would you most recommend? You know, I've, I've given my... my Uh, I I tend to give the same answer when I'm asked that question, which is a book called The Big Change about how America changed from 1900 to 1950. But I'll I'll give some some different ones. Uh, There's a book called The Half-Life of Facts by a guy named Sam Arbsman. who and basically the, the the theme of the book is summarizing the title. Things that we think are factually true, even in hard sciences like chemistry and physics, have a half-life. And over time we realize that a lot of things we thought were true were wrong, or things that were true just become outdated, outmoded, come become kind of obsolete. Uh, and that book had a big impact on just 
keeping humble, my ability just like, there are things that like we can know that we have a lot of faith in a lot of confidence in, but you always got to be open-minded to new ideas. And the idea that it's not only likely, but certain that there are things that all of us believe with high confidence that are not true. Every one of us has something like that. And to stay a little bit more open-minded is so key. Love it. Okay. The last three are real uh, low balls. If you weren't doing what you're doing now, what career would you pick? I was a valet before I became a writer. And I, loved it. <laughs> I read that in your book. Great, great story. You, oh my goodness. The story you tell in your book about what you witnessed with a guy with too much money and a bag full of gold coins is yeah, mind blowing. Everyone has to read it. <laughs> it, was su- it was such a fun job because we got to run around outside driving fancy cars and wit- witnessing rich, drunk people play out their lives in front of you. It was so entertaining. I love that job. <laughs> oh yeah. And witnessing the difference in getting rich and staying which, which I know you, you write so wonderfully about in your book. Um, second last question. What's your favorite vacation spot? I suspect it's something to do with skis, but hit me. No, it's not. It's Maui. Uh, I, I think I think Maui, if you live, you know, obviously if you live on the West coast of the United States, it's not that far away. And I, I think the world of Maui is my favorite spot in the world. Mm, I've heard that a few times. Um, and finally, wine, beer, or soda? Red wine. That's it. Red wine. I, 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 I actually, so, so here's the nuance. So I really enjoy good beer, but I, yeah. for whatever reason, I don't know if I have a good explanation for this, but I only drink it when I'm out. I never have good beer in my house. I always have good red wine yeah. in my house, but never beer in my house. But whenever I go out and I drink beer, I think I love this. I just, I, for yeah. whatever reason, I just never bring it back home. <laughs> okay. We're going to have to, we're going to have to change Maui to Dublin and change red wine to Guinness, you know? Fair. <laughs> well, let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. So that's about all we have time for today. Morgan, thanks so much for joining us on the Stock Club podcast. It was great to have you on. Make sure to come back and join us again soon. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. So there we have it. Thanks once again to Morgan for taking the time out to join us on Stock Club. Hopefully he'll join us again soon. And don't forget that Morgan's new book, The Psychology of Money, is available to buy now from wherever you get your books. I also want to mention we have a new guest series with our friends over at NOAA going live today, How Markets Are Forcing Investors to Rethink Risk. Remember, NOAA, spelled N-O-A, offers professionally read versions of articles from the Financial Times, Bloomberg's, The Economist, Harvard Business Review, and a load more top publishers. You can find that series in the NOAA app now. That's it from this week's Stock Club. Don't forget about all the great new stuff in the My Wall Street app at the moment. And if there's anything you'd like us to discuss or explain on the next episode, make sure to get in touch. You can find us, as always, on Twitter. That's at MyWallStreetHQ. Or shoot us an email at pod at MyWallStreet.com. That's P-O-D at MyWallStreet.com. Don't forget to subscribe to Stock Club too and leave us a rating or a review if you're enjoying the podcast. We'll talk to you again in two weeks. Happy investing. This episode of Stock Club is brought to you by Hyundai. Restart your journey towards a greener world with Hyundai's next generation of zero emission cars. Find out more about their range of electric vehicles and the savings they can bring to your company and employees at Hyundai.ie. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamline my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience 
every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. 